Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Okay, can you hear me? All right. Now, so last week, Paulo kind of gave a little bit of an intro. Um, this week again, I guess kind of to assure you guys, <laughs> um, show you that they're kind of making sure I'm not going to blow it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've, I've been teaching Sunday school, which is rad. Um, been teaching here and there uh, for a while and throughout my life. God's given me that blessing. It, no matter what, it's still pretty scary every single time you get up here. And, um, I don't know if that ever really goes away, but hopefully it'll be a healthy fear and uh, it keep me humble. But uh, last week, if you guys weren't here, Paulo was able to share with us. Um, we started the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and so he explained, like, well, he would take the first one because he kind of related to the, the first son who kind of went off and was rebellious. And he'll give me the second one because I was kind of like the good son who didn't run off and stayed obedient with the father. And which kind of, I mean, I was, I was born and raised in the church, so I guess it makes sense. The second son isn't really necessarily someone that you want to be. It's actually, it's actually kind of the, the bad guy of the story, you might say. And uh, so I'm not sure how <laughs> uh, I'd take that. But it's, it's somebody I'm really terrified of becoming. Um, I'm, I'm pretty scared because it's someone I know that I can be. Uh, and it's, it's somebody that I have been. And I continually remind myself and be uh, aware of because it's, it's something that we can all fall into. So in the end, I guess it makes sense after all. I guess <laughs> we all can be the second sonnet, and I'm not an exception. Um, so the truth is, it doesn't matter who we are, um, where we begin. Both sons actually began in the Father's house. Um, the condition that Christ is addressing is a painfully deep issue that affects all of us universally. We are all sinful sons, and our sin is just as ugly whether we associate with the older one or the younger son. So this parable is actually about to show us that aside from the younger son's repentance, there really is nothing different between the younger brother's rebellion and the older son's obedience. So kind of the main gist is going to be this. Uh, Last week, we got to see how Jesus brought to light the Father's heart, his tremendous love for us. Um, this week we'll see in the second half of the parable um, that he's going to do two things. He's not just going to show the Father's heart this tremendous love, but he's also going to reveal to the Pharisees their own hearts, um, which is something that, that is a pretty terrifying thing. One other mistake I made, I forgot to start my timer. This is for your guys' sake. Make sure I don't go over time here. All right. Um, before I start, I'll just open up in prayer. We'll be in Luke chapter 15. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. God, that you are good. Lord, you're our loving Father. God, um, Lord, and there's nothing that could separate us from that love. God, we pray that, that that, would be the, that would be the reality, God, that nothing would separate us. Um, or nothing would come between us 
in you, God, like this second brother. Lord, if there's anything there that you would tear it down, Lord, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. God, that, uh, Lord, I would deliver it. I would only deliver your word and your truth. God, your gospel and nothing else. God, it's something I can't do without you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started the first half. Um, Paula brought to light the Father's heart for us all. Um, there's kind of three main points that he ran over. Just to quickly, I'll try to breeze through some of this. Um, we covered how the Father is missional in his heart towards the lost. He was seeking us out. He was waiting for our return. He wasn't just kind of biding his time. Um, he was hoping for it, despite the judgment that we deserved. He was relentless in his pursuit of the lost. He is waiting to forgive us when we come to him in humility and desire just his heart. And the celeb- he is celebratory in finding the lost. His love is so huge and tremendous that he and the host of heaven, who share in the Father's heart, are just freaking out when anybody comes to him. Just one person returns back to him. And it's a love that we'll never really fully be able to comprehend. And Paulo kind of expounded on just how huge and massive and unexpected God's love is, and we think we don't deserve it. Um, Paulo also kind of briefly gone over, and I'll bring it back really quickly, is how we saw the whole of chapter 15 is actually one complete narrative. This parable is just the end of it, um, but it really begins in verse 1. So if you guys have your Bibles, uh, verse 1 kind of sets the stage. It says pretty simply, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. This is Christ. He's um, been teaching and drawing crowds. And the tax collectors and sinners came near to him to hear. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats for them. Based on what we saw last week, this is kind of like the moment where the father is seeing his son come to him from far off. He just literally stoked the tax collectors and sinners, these people that he came for, people that he loves, are coming. They're coming back. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to know him. And Jesus must be absolutely excited, absolutely full of joy. Um, he's like that father who's seeing his lost son finally come back. And then these guys... The church, the leaders, supposedly the good guys, they come up and they start grumbling. Right in the middle of Jesus' joy, if his stoke, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And who would do that? This isn't the first time the Pharisees kind of showed this sort of an attitude. Um, there's another instance previously in the book of Luke where Jesus was invited over to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And there was a woman of poor reputation who came in and broke an expensive flask of ointment um, and like entered their dinner party. And uh, the rest of people are kind of freaking out, and Jesus allows her to do her thing. Um, and the Pharisee in that moment, this man said, if that, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. As if, if he was a good guy, he wouldn't let this dirty person come near him and touch him. And this is essentially kind of the same attitude that these scribes and Pharisees in verse 2 are having. Um, the supposed experts of the religious law and godliness, 
the the respected, the popular religious leaders and authority. Um, they're kind of a paraphrase, maybe their words are, how can this man who claims to be a prophet of God, the Messiah, associate himself with these kinds of people? So Jesus hears this, and he turns around and tells them these three parables. Um, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And so in the first two, I'll just run through them quickly, is basically, he just turns to them and says, hey, if you had lost just one sheep, you had 99, but you lost one, you searched all day and you found it, you'd be stoked, you'd be celebrating, you'd call all your friends and family, you guys would celebrate. It's like, right? It's like, same way heaven is celebrating when this is happening right now. Um, it says, if you guys lost some, a coin, just one coin, you had other, you had other money, but you lost one silver coin, you just upturned your whole house, searched for it, and then finally found it, you would be stoked. You would celebrate. You would be calling together your friends and family, and you'd celebrate that you found your lost coin. It's like, just so, like, I'm celebrating right now. Heaven celebrates when just one person comes. And there's the Father's heart. He loves them, and he doesn't matter how many or who, if one person's coming back to him, he's, he's freaking out, and he's stoked, and he's full of joy. And so this is the question that he is asking. He's like, wouldn't you celebrate? I'm celebrating. This is my deal. This is why I'm here. Like, rejoice with me. But the last story is a little different. In this one, he doesn't just relate the truth to the Father's heart to these guys. He also explains the difficult reality of their own hearts. He's kind of, in a way, just kind of explaining the situation. Like, look, obviously you guys aren't celebrating with me. Like, well, this is why. This is what is really happening right here in your own hearts. So, um, I like to begin to read just the whole parable one more time very quickly to kind of keep the whole narrative intact. Um, so we're going to start at verse, let's see, 11. The, my translation is the ESV. It might be a little bit different than, um, than your guys, but I'll read it aloud. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they begin to celebrate. This is where we pick up this week. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this is your brother, who is dead and is alive. He is, was lost and is found. The parable ends just like that. At the end of the chapter, that's the end of this whole scene. Um, and we don't hear anything else. The son is still left outside the house. To the best of our knowledge, he never goes in. We don't really know. It's, it sounds like it's pretty unlikely. Um, it is very clear, and it, it would have been probably very clear to the Pharisees and the scribes whom Jesus was talking to, that the younger son is to represent the sinners and the tax collectors that they were speaking of. And the second son is to represent themselves, the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus, in this story, reveals two things about the truth of their hearts. And what Jesus teaches out to them is, are some hard truths. They're hard truths because they're not really difficult to comprehend, but they're pretty difficult to swallow. But if we do, if we do di digest these things, if we examine this, not just separating ourselves from the fairy situation, they're hard truths that can really lead us into freedom, into a tremendous and wonderful freedom that God wants for us. Um, and he wanted for the Pharisees. This is the first thing. With this parable, Jesus explains to them that just like this angry older son, you're grumbling because you believe your works have earned you a place in the Father's house. And this pride is exactly what excludes you. It's by your own doing. The brother says, look, these many years I served you, I never took off and squandered your wealth. I never took your inheritance and spent it on prostitutes. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me anything. It's like, I never got anything to celebrate with my friends. I didn't get anything. But when this son of yours came, who doesn't deserve any of that, much less the fatted calf, Paul kind of expanded upon how tremendous this celebration was and the privilege that he had. It's like, he didn't deserve any of that. And yet you gave it to him. He never left his father. He felt like he deserved what was given to the, that younger brother. This wasn't fair. It was as if he was asking, what about all my good works? What about all that I have done? What do I deserve for that? And this isn't really a hard thing to relate to. It, earning things 
isn't necessarily a wrong thing. It's, a, it's a actually a really natural, really normal thing. We, we earn things every day. We have our jobs. We have school, awards, competition. We earn our wages, our grades, and titles. Um, that's, that's just a part of the way this world works. It's natural. It's normal. And so there's nothing wrong about earning things and working for things. Um, and good works. Good works, they're good. To you. In Ephesians 2.10, um, Paul explains, For we are his workmanship, God's, created in Christ Jesus for good works, um, which God prepared for us beforehand, that we would walk in them. Like that's, that's, it's like God made us for good works. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we're not to say work's unimportant, and it's wrong to, to work hard to earn things. The key thing is this. In relation to the standard of heaven and what it takes to be justified before God, like they're worthless. They're good for nothing. Our debt is too great. There's no way we could pay it. It's like, I mean, I'm going to think of an illustration. Probably illustrations always fall short. But it's as if we just washed a car, which just so happened to be, I don't know, some special edition Ferrari. And we finished our work, which we did a really, really good job. It was like detailed, shiny, it was perfect, pristine. And we're like, okay, um, I like this car now. It's, it's mine. I earned it. <laughs> and then if we were at the dealership, the guy would have laughed at us, threw us out. We're like, you know, this car, this car is $500,000. You just washed it. I'll give you 100 bucks. Like, um, the debt is just ridiculously too great. It's something that we cannot earn on our own. The fact is, is we're without hope in that matter. Ephesians 2, actually the earlier part of the verse that I just brought up, um, it says something towards that. It likens us to our sin as corpses. We're as good as dead, lifeless bodies when it comes to saving ourselves and bridging the gap that lies between us and the righteous requirement of heaven. Ephesians 2 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together um, with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The fact is, none of us deserve to enter the Father's house. None of us really deserve that fatted calf, the party, the celebration, the best robe, the ring. We don't even deserve to be there. It is only by the Father's love and rich mercy that he was allowed back. The older brother was confident that his own works had earned him something, that he deserved those things. We're giving a terrifying picture of people who are also confident and comforted by their own works. This is in Matthew. It won't come up on the screen, but I'll just read it. Matthew 7, 21-23 says, Not everyone who says to me, this is Christ speaking, um, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Like, we did all these things. Like, we worked for this. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a scary thing. It's a terrifying thing. It's, I haven't cast out demons. I haven't even done mighty works, much less like prophesy in his name. I, um, and yet, those are great things. And yet, Christ says, the Father is going to say, I never knew you. The older son believed that his works were going to get him something. And they were going to get him somewhere. But the fact is, Christ is the only reason why we can be there. But in this parable, there's a second thing that Jesus reveals about the difficult truth, what the son was truly after. The son thought his works, his obedience to the father was going to get him something, somewhere. And what Christ explains is that that thing may not have been what the son realized. It may not have actually been what he had imagined he was after. We'll see if it wasn't actually really just the father that the older son wanted. If he wanted the father, he was there. He entreated him to come back in. He gave him a chance. He's like, well, if the son was just bummed, like, I just wanted to be with you. The son's like, you can be with me. Just come back in. We'll celebrate. And the son would have walked right back in. He would have had what he wanted, if what he wanted was the father. But the truth is, it wasn't that. It was something else. He refused. There still was something else that he wanted. The second thing that Jesus revealed about the Pharisees' hearts. The truth is, like this older son, you don't actually want the father. You just want the benefits of the father. He is just a means to an end. You could have joined in the celebration and been with him, but you didn't want it. And what are those benefits? Like, what are those things? What did the younger brother have that the older brother didn't have? What was the missing piece? They both had the father. Um, They both were there at the house. They both had the father's love. The father loved them both equally. The thing that the younger brother had that the older brother didn't was just the praise, the party, and the fattened calf and the inheritance that he had taken early. In light of this, you might say that there really is nothing different between the younger son's rebellion and the older son's obedience, aside from the fact that one repented. They had the same aim in their heart, their own personal desires. They just chose different paths to achieve it. Paulo had touched on this last week with the younger son, but we'll see kind of how it's also present in the older. The younger son was like, here, here's the life I want. If I go to the father, I can demand my inheritance early, and I go just, I'm going to go there. I'm just going to take it and go, and I can have it now. The older brother took a little bit of a different approach, but it was essentially the same thing. Here's the life I want. This, these are my desires. If I go to the Father, if I be obedient, if I work hard, I'll be patient. Eventually, when he dies, when I've earned my inheritance, I'll get it, and I can be there. 
instead of instant gratification and disobedience, like the younger son, the older son sought the same ends by patience and obedience. In the end, he really actually wasn't different. He was just more careful, took the higher road, the more respected, um, well-looked-upon route. When the Pharisees heard this, I can't imagine, and they were stoked. They're like, this is a great story. <laughs> they knew who they were in this situation. They knew that Jesus was talking about them. I'm not sure they understood the significance of it all as we're, we've been graciously allowed in God's word. I believe they knew that it was good not to be outside the Father's house. The rad thing about this parable is is that even though Christ is harshly calling them out on their pride and the truth of their hearts, he's still entreating them. He's still calling to him repentance. He's still showing the Father's heart towards them. He made it clear that he was inviting them to repent. The Father came out and entreated him, come in, like rejoice with me. He told them to their parables, like I'm rejoicing, rejoice with me. But the, the older son doesn't. And it's up to them to decide what they want to do. Teaching this sermon, it's pretty, I mean, it's a scary sermon. Tripp mentions, mentioned before, I think he used to have a quote. Actually, it's not here. Is it still here? He had a quote on the, the pulpit from another preacher along the lines of, we can't really begin to effectively preach or teach until we've taught it to ourselves. And in studying for this, you're, you're basically soaking in it, and you have to be confronted with it closely and intimately. And I know it's an area in my own life that God has challenged me, and God has called me out. He's given me a chance to be honest with myself and ask me straight to my face this question, am I enough, or is there something else that you want as well? Am I just a means to an end? At this moment, this, this own moment in my own life, he gave me that chance, and I had fully pulled a Peter on Jesus. I had denied it. I was like, no, I'm, no, it's just you. It's just you, of course. There's nothing else that I really want. But when it came, he, God, I mean, in his own grace and mercy, gave me a situation which it was just crystal clear. Like, it, it couldn't have been more obvious. Like, hey, here's your chance. You can prove it. Like, do you, am I enough? And can you just be with me? Or are there some other things that you want more? And I, and I blew it. I couldn't make the choice. He showed me, but it was his mercy. And he, he basically just gave me a healthy slap to the face, which is what I needed. And, and thank God it, it worked. <laughs> I was like, able to hear and listen. And my own pride hadn't gotten in the way. It was a gracious slap that I, I really didn't even deserve. This is a scary sermon because this heart that the Pharisees had was essentially a heart of spiritual pride. And it's not necessarily something that you conquer once. You're like, okay, I learned my lesson. God showed me. He slapped me, and now I'm good. I'm never going to do that again. We're evil. <laughs> We're sinful. And our pride, the devil is constantly whispering these lies in our ears, saying God isn't enough. Um, there's more. Here's this. This is something else. It's going to be better. 
it's a constant battle with our sinful nature that Paul expounds to us. He's like, man, what a wretched man that I am. What's going to free me from this body of death? Like, thank God for Jesus. <laughs> that is, this scary sermon about pride is because it's so near to us. We see the Pharisees, we talk about these other people in Scripture, and we can separate ourselves, but really, this is, it's really near especially for those of us who've been in the church. We've known the word of God. Um, we're getting comfortable. And the scary thing about pride is that it's disguised by, it disguises itself. Spiritual pride is just really pride that is disguised by a lot of good works and obedience. Pride in ourselves of what we have done and what we deserve. And really the scariest thing is that pride and self-righteousness as a sin by nature, doesn't admit itself. By default, it denies itself. It hides, and the greater it is, the more we are blind to it. It might be the one thing that is preventing us from entering the Father's house. Like this older brother, like the Pharisees, and we just can't see it. The brother may not have even realized that he didn't want the Father. The Pharisees may not have realized it either. Their own pride might have convinced them that they still seek the Father's heart. The question for myself and for each of us is, do we know what it is that we really want? Are we satisfied with just the Father, or are we only interested in his benefits? In this time and place, I mean, there are good benefits. It's right now, I mean, in our situation, it's not really bad to be a Christian. I mean, it's relatively a respectful way of life. In the Pono way, people generally appreciate, respect good people. Um, they're, they're loved, and people recognize the godliness, and they recognize the goodness of God. And people, whether it's given, the glory is given to God or not, Jesus gives some pretty good advice on how to be happy and healthy and have good relationships. I mean, it's the truth. And he gives it to us freely. Um, they're all good things, and there's all good benefits being part of the Christian club, you might say. Um, and it's really easy to get comfortable, it, especially I mean, we're, we're not experiencing persecution here. We have the blessing of being in a place where it's, it's relatively easy to be a Christian. There might be some opposition. There might be some, I don't know, ridicule or looking down upon, but it's relatively minor. And then not to mention heaven, <laughs> the benefits, eternal life with God. Um, you may have heard the, the phrase like um, the fire insurance. We're just like, God, I'm just, I just don't want to be in hell. <laughs> That's all that I care about. Just get me out of heaven. I mean, get me into heaven, get me out of hell, and we'll be good. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. When I was a kid, my mom one of, one of our favorite things is watching weird movies, and she always showed us strange and bizarre movies, especially from her time in, in the 70s. But now it's one of our favorite things, one of my favorite things, actually kind of really shaped who I am now. But there is a movie series called A Thief in the Night, and it, it's kind of just like, it's kind of corny, it's kind of cheesy, and it's probably not very accurate, but it's basically a movie series about the tribulation and what's going to happen to those people that are left behind and it scared, scared the hell out of me. I was 
so scared of going to hell or being left behind. I was like, God, whatever it is, just I don't want to be these people who are being killed and hunted down and these terrifying images of, I don't know, beasts and monsters and things. And it was, it was scary. Maybe it was a good fear too. Um, but we can just treat God as just our ticket out, our, our, our free ticket to heaven. Um, and that's all that really matters. John Piper, um, phenomenal preacher and teacher, um, he describes it really well in this book he wrote called God is the Gospel. I'll have a portion of the quote up on the screen, but I'll read the bulk of it first. He puts it this way. The critical question of our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you have ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And he sums it up in this. All the saving events and all the saving blessings of the gospel are means of getting obstacles out of the way that we might know and enjoy God most fully. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Do we desire God for his own sake? It is enough to just know and be with Jesus. Paul the Apostle, he was a Pharisee. He was one of these guys that Jesus was talking to. And for a time, he was the worst of them. He was hunting down Christians. He was proud. He thought he had earned his way. But this is what he says once he had got Jesus and nothing else. He says all those things. It's in Philippians 3, 4 through 9. I'll have that up. Whatever gain I had from these things, these things I thought I had done to earn my way, that I thought had got me some sort of reward, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, not heaven's sake, not for the benefits, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain not just eternal life or heaven, these great things, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Whatever it was that Paul tasted, it was radical. And it blew his mind at such a point, he's like, you know, nothing else in this world matters. All that matters is that I get to know God and I get to be found in him. David was another who had tasted this. And he says in Psalm 63, 3 through 5, Paul Paulo shared this with us last week. Because your steadfast love is better than life, like my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, which I really actually sympathize with. And my soul will praise you with joyful lips. Like God satisfies him. He says earlier, like, there's nothing else. Like, he's in a desert, dry, thirsty, barren. And he's like, God's like a plate of fat, rich food. And he just gets to eat it. Um, he says, 
God is enough. He says, your love is better than life. So the question for us, are we living in such a way that is comforted by our good works? Do we truly desire the Father? Is he just a means to an end in our own life plans? If we are examining ourselves, the desires of our heart, and we are to be found at fault, maybe this is us. The Father isn't waiting for us. Like, like it's about time. I'm going to get you some cracks like some angry father. He's not waiting to give us laughs when we get back home. He's waiting to embrace us. He's ready to kill the fatted calf. And he's ready to throw a party. Whether we are the younger rebellious son or we're this proud, obedient son, he cannot wait and he cannot hold back his joy. That last verse where he says, Son, you're always been me, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. It, that last portion, it, it can also kind of be translated. He's like, I had to. I had to celebrate. But I, he can't hold back his joy and his love for us. So this is, this is our application. This is to examine our own hearts. And like, what do we do now? <laughs> what, what is this? Are we just... He's, we have to be aware of falling right back into that trap of trying, okay, now I got to work harder. I got I to gotta get my act together. <laughs> That's actually not the first step. The first step is just to go straight to the Father. We can't just go straight trying to fix it ourselves on our own again. Just come straight to the Father and ask him, just like remove whatever it is that's coming between you and me. I want to just want you. Um, during worship, we'll have people here up in the front for prayer. We have these carpets. We'll have communion. Um, don't wait. Uh, don't wait outside the house. I'm just coming straight to the Father. Now let's close in prayer. Dearly Father, God, Lord, we thank you that you are good, God, and you love us so much. God, you're desperately seeking us. You desperately want us, Lord. You're desperately reaching out to these Pharisees, Lord, in their own pride. You are calling them to rejoice with you, to enter the house, just be with the Father. God, tear down any walls, any barriers, any pride that's coming between us and you. Don't let us wait outside the house. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know your joy. God, and let that be the motivation for our obedience, God, for, for the pleasure in doing good works. God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.